Pastor Chris's podcast. Today, I want to share the story of beautiful Bathsheba. She's the fourth of the only five women that were listed in Jesus' royal lineage over 40 generations. And of the five women that are listed, Bathsheba is not even fully named. Some translations add her name in parentheses, but the original Greek literally says, and David the king begat Solomon of her of Urias. So her name is not even listed out in the original language. Oh, Matthew, can't you even say her name? Beautiful Bathsheba. Bathsheba's story is incredibly complicated, and it's embarrassing. It's the kind of tragic, awful affair that most people would rather not talk about and just forget that it ever happened. Certainly, it is not the kind of glorious tale that one praises as a proud moment in your family history. And yet, Bathsheba is right there in the genealogy of Christ our Lord in the first chapter of Matthew. Without this woman and the terrible thing that happened, Jesus would not be the man that He was because Bathsheba was His great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. So what happened to beautiful Bathsheba? Let's find out today. We're going to be focusing on, the second cha- uh, on 2 Samuel chapter 11 and moving through. In the spring of that year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And if you're moving through this quickly, you might have missed something. But I want to note it here that there's trouble. You know that there's trouble in the passage because it says that this is the time of year that kings go to war, but David isn't going to war. He is in the city. For some reason, he is not acting like a king. And in wonder, is he injured? Is he tired? Does he have pneumonia? Is he uh, the flu? Is he being lazy? We don't know for sure. All we know is that this is the time of year that kings go out to war, but David's not out there. He's back in the city. And Bathsheba, uh, then we go on. It says uh, uh, in verse 2, Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Bathsheba's father was Eliam, who was the son of a man named Ahithophel. Uh, Ahithophel was one of David's best royal advisors. A few years after David meets Bathsheba, Ahithophel will be involved in in this tragic incident where Ahithophel will defect from David's side to his son Absalom, who is leading a rebellion to try to overthrow David. Now, it's not in the Bible, but rabbinic legend holds that Bathsheba's grandfather, Ahithophel, is the one who actually incited Absalom to rebel against David, sort of whispered in his ear and and, and led it. And though it doesn't say it in Scripture, ancient Jewish rabbis taught that Ahithophel told Bathsheba to seduce David on purpose as part of a plot 
to take over the kingdom. And I personally, I read about that and that research, and I think that's just wild speculation on the part of the rabbis who are trying to make sense of, because we all want to know, David, he's a man after God's own heart. He's the one that, that we always hold up as being the great king. And we, we, we see this, how is it that David does this thing that we're about to read that he does? It makes no sense. He's normally so faithful and so righteous. Why would he do such a terrible thing? And I think these rabbis are trying to figure out, you got to figure out a way to justify what David did. And so they come up with this story. But we do know that Ahithophel was one of David's royal advisors and that Bathsheba was Ahithophel's granddaughter. And I think that if anything, when Ahithophel eventually rebels against David to be the advisor for his son Absalom who's trying to overthrow him, I think maybe Ahithophel is just trying to pay back David for what we are about to see happen to Bathsheba. How would you feel if someone did the following to your granddaughter or your daughter. We go on in 2 Samuel 11, chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. Then David sent messengers to get her, Bathsheba. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I am pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was Bathsheba's husband. He was also one of David's very best warriors. Think Green Berets or, or Navy SEALs. He was like the top elite soldier. He was listed among the 37 best warriors in David's entire army. An army that consisted of tens of thousands of soldiers. And he's in the top 37. And Uriah was a Hittite. He was not a Hebrew. People often accuse the God in the Old Testament and the Israelites of being racist, that hated foreigners. But that just wasn't true. Again and again and again, we see that it's not true. We've already, as we've gone through this series, we've heard about Tamar, and we've heard about Rahab, and we've heard about Ruth, all who were non-Jewish foreigners living among God's people, His holy people Israel, who were listed in Jesus' genealogy. So obviously, um, that was not the case that, that they hated foreigners. Foreigners were always welcome if they worshiped God. And God even said that you must take care of the foreigners that live among you because they are the most, some of the most vulnerable people in your community. And God wants you to take care of them. It was false gods and idolatry and wicked religion that God rejected and that He called His people to reject. Uriah was a Hittite, and yet Uriah's name itself means Yahweh is my light. Now Yahweh is the proper name for God. The God of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible. The, the name He revealed to Moses in the burning bush. Bush, you remember when He said, when, uh, when Moses said, what shall I tell them? Who shall I say told me to come to them and deliver them? And God says, tell my people, I am has sent you. I am. And I am is in Hebrew, is Yahweh. Uriah was a convert 
to Judaism, who worshipped the one true God, and he was one of David's very best and most loyal elite soldiers. And we shall now see how honorable Uriah's character was. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. And he told Uriah to go home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home and wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. See, what's happening here, in case you missed it, David figures that he can cover this whole thing up. If he can just get Uriah to sleep with his wife Bathsheba, then Uriah will think that the child that is to be born will be his. But Uriah's honor and integrity are getting in the way. And what an ironic thing it is in the story that David, supposedly a man after God's own heart, has lapsed in his own integrity and has done a deplorable thing. And he can't make it go away because his mighty man Uriah is too, has too much integrity. And then going on, it says, Well, stay here today, David told him. And tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. And then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guards. Got this band of brother thing going on. So next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back so he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to the spot to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. So now David has gone from bad to worse. Now he's gone from adultery to lies to cover up and even to murder. If David were our president, the Congress would call for impeachment and the Senate would convict. He has put his own interest ahead of the kingdom of God that he swore to defend. He's abused his power. He's murdered Uriah. In the process, several of the soldiers were needlessly killed. All for David's terrible sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. 2 Samuel 11, 26-27 when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. 
And she gave, then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. And if you go on into the next chapter in 2 Samuel, in the 12th chapter, there's a tremendous story of how God sends a prophet, Nathan, to rebuke and to punish David. I encourage you all to go home and read it and read the next few chapters and see how the story plays out. But I'm not going to read it this morning because it's not a story of Bathsheba. It's a story of David and how he was held accountable and how he repented. But this morning, I'm telling the story of Bathsheba, not David. You see, the, and that's the problem that you run into with Bathsheba. She's just treated like a side character in the whole thing. David's the king. Uriah's the mighty warrior. Nathan's the prophet. And most of the commentaries and sermons that you find when you go to look for books, everything is always about all the men. There just isn't a lot of information about Bathsheba, the woman. Well, it's a man's world. At least it was in 2 Samuel's time. And I have so many questions about Bathsheba. Don't you? Like, was she a willing party to this whole thing? Was she a victim? Now, in the age that we live in, we, we've come to a time in the last year or two when so much has been coming out about sexual assault and the troubles that women have been facing in the workplace and in the world, and, and, and we've got the Me Too movement that's going on. And all of these things need to come out because there's terrible things that have been going on in our world that need to stop. And, and, and all of that's coming out. And we learned that... that I was looking at some statistics, and, and from what I can find, it says that as many, as high as one in three women are sexually harassed. That's like 33% in their lifetime. One in five women either are actually raped or someone attempts to rape them in their lifetime. That's 20% of all women. That is mind-boggling if you think about it. And, and as a man standing up here in the pulpit, I need to ask for your permission this morning just to speak frankly. Because I hope you know my heart and trust me. I hope that you know that I know I don't have all the answers. I freely admit that as a man, my ignorance is there. I don't know what women go through. Even I've got two daughters and a wife, and, and I don't know all that you go through. And it's quite possible, as a white man standing up here, I stick my foot completely in my mouth as I speak this morning. But I hope you at least know that it comes from a sincere heart as I try to, to struggle through. And look at this story where Bathsheba, a woman, was in this situation. And there may be many women in this congregation today, there has to be, who have dealt with these issues. Maybe more than once. Maybe people know about it. Maybe you've never told anyone about it. But Bathsheba was one of those women. And you know, I think about Bathsheba in that situation. With a king, this is a political situation. Immediately what comes to my mind 
is our own time and our own political situation. Think back to someone like Monica Lewinsky, right? In the 90s with Bill Clinton and all of that that came out and how embarrassing that was and, and how, how embarrassing it was for Bill Clinton, but how embarrassing it was for Monica Lewinsky and how embarrassing it was for everyone. You remember, right? And I wonder, you know, everybody was asking those questions. Did Monica do it on purpose or was she part of some scandal? Or, and I wonder if we treat her fairly. How about all the other women who are thrust into the public spotlight because they are sexually harassed or objectified or assaulted because they were victims. And now they, not only were they victims one time, they're victims all over again, being assaulted all over again because their private life and something very tender is being pulled out into the public spotlight. And everybody's talking and saying, what happened? And asking all these questions. Put yourself in their shoes for a minute. How would you feel? And here's the thing. People rarely ever know the whole story about anything. But everyone forms an opinion. It's, it's as if we cannot abide not knowing or thinking we know. And so we're compelled to construct our own conclusions, usually based on the most spurious of clues. We look at people's incredibly traumatic experiences that are as complex as a tangled ball of yarn with threads of mistakes and victimization and causation, outside influences and happenstances and influences from the spiritual realm, both darkness and light. And this all tangled up and we try to distill it down and simplify it into some neatly tied bow like we would have on the top of a Christmas present. And life just isn't like that. That is not how real life works. And it's not how God's story works either. Because God's story is in the Bible is real life. And we may never know the whole story about David and Bathsheba. Only God knows the truth. But we do know this. God embedded Bathsheba's memory in Jesus' royal lineage. Whatever her virtues or failings may have been, God knows. And He has kept her name for all to know for all time. But we do know some things for sure about Bathsheba. We do know that she really couldn't say no to David. If David the king summons Bathsheba to the palace, it doesn't matter if she's married. It doesn't matter if he says he wants to sleep with her. What's she going to do? We already know that she lives in a male society, a male-dominated society where women have no rights, and David's the king. What he says, you do. We also know her husband was murdered. 
Can you imagine? We also know Bathsheba got pregnant. She gave birth. And the child died within seven days. The Bible says that the child's death was a punishment for David's sin. That's what the Bible says. It was for David's sin. And yet, the baby's death grieved Bathsheba too. You see that a few chapters later. She needed comforting as the child was, dying, was dead. I can't imagine the horror of carrying a child in your womb for nine months, especially if it was an unwanted child or a child that came through forced union, but you carried it for nine months, and then you hold it in your arms for seven days, and then you watch it die. That's just messed up. And we don't even know if sex with David was consensual or forced. How would that affect the emotions? We also know that Bathsheba became David's wife after her husband was murdered. Again, she couldn't really say no. <laughs> I mean, David's the king. If he wants you as his wife, you're his wife. Plus, she, I mean, if she didn't have a husband, she didn't have a son, she didn't have a father to take care of, you know, what's she going to do? Maybe she was just making the best of her situation. Like, Women have always had to do, especially in times, in biblical times. It's possible, maybe it was her plan all along, like the rabbis said. The truth is, we don't know. But Bathsheba remained David's loyal wife. She had another son. The first one died, but she had another son named Solomon, whom David promised would be his heir to the throne. <clears throat> we also know that even though David had at least eight other wives and 18 sons, Bathsheba managed to secure succession to the royal throne for her son, Solomon. An ascension that stood against many other rivals. Furthermore, Bathsheba helped guide Solomon as he started as king. You know, Solomon came to be king as a young, I don't, we don't, I don't know exactly how old he was, but he was young. He needed advising, and his mother was one of his advisors. Many people believe that Proverbs 31, you know, that's that famous passage in Proverbs that extols the virtues of the ideal woman. It says it was written by King Lemuel, but when you go back and try to find out who King Lemuel is, nobody knows who King Lemuel is. A lot of people think it was a nickname for Solomon. that He wrote it about the advice that his mother Bathsheba gave him. There are certainly two pieces of advice in the beginning of Proverbs chapter 31 that sound a lot like something, something that Bathsheba would tell her son when he was becoming king. <coughs> Excuse me. Proverbs 31, verse 2 and 3. Listen to this. Think about how this would sound coming from Bathsheba and all that she'd been through. Oh, my son. Oh, son of my womb. Oh, son of my vows. Don't waste your strength on women or on those who ruin kings. 
That's interesting. I encourage you to take some time to read all the trouble David got into because of what he did to Bathsheba. Pain, heartache, murder, wasted time and strength and resources of God's kingdom and people that died, people that were hurt. And think about your own lives today. And walk in integrity. But there's another bit of advice I think even more relevant and likely to come from the mouth of Bathsheba, a woman trying to make her way in a man's world where she had no power and no voice and no respect and no guarantee of justice. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Advice to the king. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. You know, God can use anything in your life to accomplish His plans. He can use your mistakes. He can use your fears. He can use your trauma. He can use your sin. God could even use an affair or a sexual assault to accomplish His plans. That doesn't mean we should go looking for those things. Certainly not. Who wants the pain and the suffering and the darkness and the death that come from those kinds of evil? No, we don't go looking for them. But sometimes these evils come and they find us. And if something like that has found you, I want you to know God loves you. God cares about you. He knows the whole story. He's the only one that knows the whole story. And even if it feels like the whole world doesn't understand or care or seek justice for you, God knows. God cares. God understands. And God will bring justice as only God can. And Jesus, the great, 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 great grandson of beautiful Bathsheba, is the answer. He is the one who saves and forgives and reconciles and heals and in the end will make all things right. He is the one who was born in the manger, but He is also the one we wait for who will come again to judge the living and the dead and make all things new.